I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is KGN News, How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, April 29th, 2014. Coming up, why baseball batters have some of the best vision, not just strong arms, in the world. And we'll learn from a CSU scientist about the emerald ash borer and why it's feared to soon wreak havoc on millions of Colorado ash trees. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Large sections of the human genome that were once referred to as junk DNA have been linked to heart failure, according to a new study. So-called junk DNA was long thought to have no important role in heredity or disease because it doesn't code for proteins. But emerging research in recent years has revealed that many of these sections of the genome produce RNA molecules that despite not being proteins, still have important function in the body. Some of these molecules associated with these sections of junk DNA are called long non-coding RNAs. Investigators from Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis report results from the first comprehensive analysis of all RNA molecules expressed in the human heart. The researchers studied failing hearts and non-failing hearts before and after patients received pump support from left ventricular assist devices. The researchers found that like other RNA molecules, expression patterns of some of these long non-coding RNAs could distinguish between two major types of heart failure. However, the long non-coding RNAs were unique in that they also could distinguish between other types of heart failure and, even more surprising, between failing hearts before and after they receive support from the pump-assist devices. The researchers don't know whether these changes in long non-coding RNAs are a cause or an effect of heart failure. However, it seems likely these RNA molecules associated with so-called junk DNA play some role in coordinating the regulation of multiple genes involved in heart function. The research paper appeared in a recent issue of the journal Circulation. You heard last winter about how the frigid weather in the eastern United States was attributed to the polar vortex. Scientists know that the vortex has two faces, one hot, one cold, depending on where you stand. Last winter, it showed its cold face to people living in the eastern United States, but in the summer of 2012, the vortex showed its warm face. That year, temperatures at the summit of Greenland rose above freezing for the first time since 1889. It raised questions about what led to the unusual melt episode. Well, a new study reveals that Greenland's surface melts in both 1889 and 2012, though more than a century apart, were triggered by epic heat waves east of the Rocky Mountains. So here's what happened. North America's scorching heat was funneled towards Greenland by an atmospheric river, a narrow, fast-flowing current of moist, warm air. And a warmer-than-average ocean off Greenland moistened the furnace-like air as it blasted north. The analysis was led by scientists at the Cooperative Institute for Research in Environmental Sciences at the University of Colorado Boulder. William Neff, a fellow at Ceres, a joint institute of CU Boulder and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, said the following about the study. 
These rare melt events on the highest elevations of Greenland require an unusual coincidence of factors. Understanding how they come together may help us better forecast the future of Greenland's ice and snow. The findings were published last week in the Journal of Geophysical Research. And in the calendar this week, check out what looks like an intriguing live performance tonight. It's a marriage of music and astronomy. The CU Symphony will perform Gustav Holst's romantic suite, The Planets. It'll be accompanied by a video with recent images taken by the Mars Curiosity rover, the Hubble Space Telescope, and other unmanned NASA spacecraft. It will be narrated by former NASA astronaut Joe Tanner. That's tonight at 7.30 in Mackey Auditorium on the CU Boulder campus. For more information and to purchase tickets, call 303-492-8008 or go to cupresents.org. Major League Baseball season is now in full swing. Fans generally take it for granted that these professional athletes are in top physical condition. What's less known is how important it is for baseball players to have perfect eyesight. Baseball players, especially batters, have some of the best vision in the world. To find out how scientists know this and study it and make it better, last month, how on earth's Shelley Schlender headed down to spring training in Arizona. There, she caught up with two of the nation's top experts on the science of vision and sports. The scientists were checking out the Cleveland Indians at the moment, but they offered tips for any baseball team and for young athletes who dream of going pro. Here's more from Shelley. At the Cleveland Indians training camp, the pitcher glares at the batter. He holds a white, fist-sized ball with red-stitched seams and throws it. A split second later, the batter swings and... <laughs> Cleveland Indian Luigi Rodriguez says that to hit a baseball, you have to focus. The ball is a little bit small, so you got to have good eyes, you know. <laughs> to see it all and process what they see quickly, ophthalmologist Daniel Labby says Major League batters have some of the world's best eyesight. So the normal average person can see something from three meters where the baseball players see it from six meters. They can be twice as far away and still see the same targets. Labby and optometrist David Kirshen are pioneers in the science of sports and sight. Kirshen says they publish scientific papers on everything from Major League Vision to the eyesight of Olympians. So we had the opportunity to work with the vision for several sports, and it turns out it's a key component in some sports and not as important in others. For example, athletes don't need amazing sight to dribble a basketball. It's a for a hint about another sport, Kirshen makes his hands into fists, then throws a punch. So if you think about a boxer, it's not necessarily important for them to have 20-20 vision, but they have to be able to move their hands very, very quickly. Quick response is a key in most sports, but to hit a small, fast ball, Labby says great eyesight is fundamental. And this will apply to cricket, and this can apply to tennis, and applies to really hockey, any fast-moving target sport. 
Take baseball. Libby says that once a pitcher throws, the batter has less than one-tenth of a second to react. That's a snap of a finger. Just when it's released from the pitcher's hand, they have to see the spin of the seams. And based on that spin pattern, they know what pitch it is. When you know what pitch it is, you know where it's going to come. Once you know where it's going to come, you can put the bat in the right place to make a good hit. Batters work hard to improve judgment and reaction time. But to sharpen their natural vision, Labby and Kirshen often recommend corrective contact lenses. Their goal is to boost normal eyes into the super eyes needed for major league success. Like many of his teammates, Cleveland Indian player Jake Lowry wears contact lenses. Helps me see the pitches, see the seams on a ball. Helps me keep the brightness down when the sun's out. Just helps me all around be able to see the pitches, see the scoreboard, see signs, everything. To refine his prescription, the doctors asked Lowry to read a standard vision chart. ECL. Go ahead and give me some guesses on the one below that. Identifying black letters on a white background checks focus, but nothing else. To track how quickly players react to more challenging targets, Labby and Kirshen have designed a test where a tiny and often faint letter C flashes on a computer screen, sometimes backwards or upside down. The athlete sits several meters away. Labby demonstrates. So there's a ring. That was open on top, open on the side. And it's open on the left side, so press the left button, left button. Since I'm not a baseball player, I couldn't see that one. I had to guess. And you can see they're very, very fast. And they're very, very faint. And it's, for me as an eye doctor, very, very difficult. But the baseball players seem to see most all of these. Libby says this test might provide a better assessment for people taking driving tests. And it could also help budding baseball players, like nine-year-old Matthew who came to the training camp to watch batting practice. I want to be a baseball player when I grow up. Labby says Matthew has a better chance of realizing his dream if his parents get his eyesight checked. And if you have a young child who's interested in playing baseball, field, but they just don't see well enough, the coach won't spend as much time with that player as they will with the player who's doing very well. He says testing eyesight and getting people the correction they need can help everyone do better at their game, whatever it is. I'm Shelly Schlender. And thanks to Shelly Schlender for that report from spring training in Arizona. tuned to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. You probably heard by now about how what's been called the most destructive looming pest blight to hit Colorado in ages. The perpetrator in question is the emerald ash borer, a small shimmery green beetle. It's believed to have hitchhiked to the U.S. and Canada on cargo ships or airplanes from its native Asia. It was first discovered in the U.S. in 2002 in Michigan near Detroit. Since then, it has wiped out millions of ash trees in many states and caused billions of dollars in damage. Last September, the ash borer was first found in Colorado, in fact, right here in Boulder. 
It wouldn't be such a concern if the insect were native, one that local ash trees could defend themselves against. But the trees have had no time to develop resistance against the exotic invader. And meanwhile, the ash borer has no predators here to keep it in check. A double whammy. To help us make sense of the ash borer and what we can do about it, if anything, we have on the line Dr. Whitney Cranshaw. He's a professor of entomology and extension specialist at Colorado State University. Dr. Cranshaw, welcome to the show. Good morning. So I want to start before we get to Colorado, since you've studied many, many, many insects in your academic lifetime. Uh, describe this one. Well, this one is uh, kind of uh, unique in that uh, it's not only not native to the United States but it uh, in North America, but it... it uh, it has unusual potential to to do injury to its to, to the host plants that are here, native host plants that are here. We we get many things from other countries. I mean, every year we find one or two new species that are native to Europe or Asia that find their way to Colorado. But but this is this is a uh, kind of a uniquely injurious species that's that's come here. And what makes it so? injurious relative to others? Like you said, so many come on cargo ships or however they ultimately make it here. Well, I'm not sure why this one is so much more damaging, but it just, uh, the, the um, plants here just do not have defense against it um, uh, uh, to any level that, that allows them to successfully defend. Uh, many other insects that have come into North America haven't had this damage potential. This one is unique, and it was fairly recent, early, early on, uh, recognized as having a uniquely damaging potential back uh, 10, 12 years ago when it was first discovered. It was it was causing inordinate amount of damage compared to some of the other exotics we get. Well, so everyone in Colorado, no doubt, can relate to the mountain pine beetle. I mean, some forests around Granby have been what 80 percent wiped out or something. So. That, though, is not exotic, but still super destructive. How, yeah, how would you compare that, them? Well, um, mountain pine beetle is, is a natural part of the forest, and it's always cycled. Um, you have outbreaks, and they go back forever, you know, uh, for as long as mountain pine beetle and forests have been in Colorado. Um, this was perhaps a little bit of a, a bigger outbreak than we've seen uh, historically or even prehistory. But, um, you know, there's always survivors. Uh, I mean, emerald ash borer is, is a new insect, and and uh, um, where it has gotten established in, in eastern forests, I mean, there really has been nothing surviving. Maybe a few seedlings uh, that have survived, that, but but this is this would be like mountain pine beetle occurring, and then after it had worked through, there was never any lodgepole pine growing again ever. Uh, we so will get lodgepole pine. Path. Yeah, it's it's a permanent thing. It's an extinction event. It's not a it's not a cycle. It's a it's a new brand new thing that it's probably. I mean, there's only probably two other things that have been like this in North American history in the forest, and one was chestnut blight, which wiped out the American chestnut around early 1900s, and second thing was uh, uh, Dutch elm disease, which uh, pretty much wiped out most American elm. But this is worse than those two. Boy, and the mountain pine beetle, I mean, it's, as you said, natural cycles, and yet many scientists think it was exacerbated by climate change, given that they they don't die off in the winter because the winter's warm enough for well, them to live on. Is there some kind of analog here? No, I don't think so. I think I, mean, I think that the human involvement is just uh, that it moved it into an, a new location, uh, uh, and uh, that... that you know, has, has created many pests in the problem when they're moved to a new area, new hosts uh, without uh, resistance. And as was mentioned before, 
absence of natural enemies. Uh, there, there really are no effective natural controls on this. And when you think that normally an insect that, say, produces, you know, 100 eggs or so, uh, 98 of them die from natural controls, and, and uh, you have outbreaks when only maybe 95 of them die, uh, I mean, this one, nothing's really affecting many of the, the eggs and their survival. So they're, they're having unlimited, uh, relatively unlimited uh, survival, which creates outbreaks. Well, that's fascinating. So you're saying an outbreak would be defined by only 95% mortality rate. Yeah, if it, if it was an insect that produced 100 huh. eggs, and, and 100 eggs is not unusual, but, I mean, that's normal. That you know, I mean, there's insects that produce 500 eggs, and normally 498 of them don't make it to reproduce. That's, that's normal natural control that we see exerted on insects. And, you know, if, if something minor, you know, prevents that much mortality, then boom, you, you know, if a doubling or tripling or quintupling of a population uh, in one generation. But, yeah, there's not much that's that's effectively suppressing this insect in North America and, and likely will not be. And it's only going after species of ash trees. Let's right. talk about in Colorado. So I was saying in the intro that it just was first sighted. doesn't mean it was first here, but first sighted last September. Um, and it's going after ash trees. How, how common are the ash trees in Colorado and, and thus how, how damaging could it get? Well, it's it's a different situation here in a couple of situations in a couple of respects. One one is that um, essentially there are no ash trees that are native to Colorado, minor exception, but um, they are a very important street tree that are typically between 15 and 25 percent of the the trees you see lining streets uh, throughout the, the uh, state and have been one of the more uh, uh, useful trees to provide shade and all the benefits of that. Plus, some of them are quite uh, ornamental, like the autumn purple ash, which has nice purple foliage that's been very popular. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it's mostly important as a street tree here. In, in, in eastern U.S., it's, it's also one of the keystone uh, species within the forest, so the forest is going to be changed forever. And, there, and everything, of course, that's associated with these plants will also then uh, die too, all the insects and other animals that are associated with ash trees. But, but so you're saying here in Colorado it doesn't have as big a role in the whole biodiversity? Equation. No, not in terms of biodiversity, but in terms of uh, uh, improving urban environments and uh, the value that shade trees provide us. No, uh, so here and, and so here the costs will be involved in terms of managing or replacing trees. So it'll probably only cost us maybe you know, a few hundred million dollars instead of a couple billion dollars that will typically be the cost of this in states to the east. Well, so um, like like any insect or human, it has its needs and its life cycle. Describe a bit about it. How does it actually bore its way in, and, and when will we start to see signs? Well, the, the adults come out pretty soon. They'll probably come out in late May, early June, lay eggs on the outside of, of the bark uh, during mostly the month of June, and then the uh, larvae go in to the tree. They, they tunnel into the tree and, and do most of their feeding pretty much just under the bark. They there was called a flat-headed boar when they're they're young, and and they make these um, uh, meandering tracks uh, underneath the bark that that girdle the tree. They cause a, a disruption of the movement of nutrients, and and usually what you see as a symptom is a progressive thinning of the crown, meaning the the leaves get thinner and the top looks thinner uh, from the the effects of this wounding under the bark and. And if it progresses, uh, uh, it, it will ultimately kill the tree. If you have enough of this girdling activity underneath the limbs and underneath the, the uh, trunk, you don't see much external of the insect. You see the, other than some 
little exit holes they make when they leave, but you just see a, a progressive decline of, of the trees. So I know some arborists, in fact, we've had some pointed out in our backyard and elsewhere saying spray them prophylactically, uh, others, and I'm curious how you would lean, saying not because of the, the ecological and health potential, you know, the damage of insecticides that might be used to spray it. But what are your what are your thoughts? What does the science say on that? Well, I mean, people who have an ash tree, when it gets to your neighborhood, you have to make a decision. Are you going to protect that tree and you have to use insecticides or, or not? Um, those are your options. You will, if you protect your tree, you will have to do that forever, but your tree will still be there. If you don't, your tree will be dead usually within, uh, you can, probably within five years after it's within your neighborhood. So, I mean, those are your options. So you either treat or you, you, you lose your tree. And, and I think a lot of people are going to make the decision, you know, maybe we should, you know, start replanting other trees for when it comes into our neighborhood. And I, or maybe I will take down that tree when it does show up here. But what about the known impacts of the insecticides themselves? Like many of the neonicotinoids have been linked to a colony collapse disorder with the yeah, honeybees. I mean, it, well, there's the, 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 the treatments that are, are used for this, uh, none of them that we would recommend are, are sprays, um, except one which would be just sprayed on the lower trunk. Uh, other ones are put into the soil or are, um, are uh, injected into the tree. Um, and yeah, all of these have, have some impacts. Um, one of the big questions, uh, in, since you brought up pollinators, uh, uh, if there's going to be a problem with pollinators, then that would occur if uh, pollinators use ash trees. And that's uh, a question that we're hoping to resolve a little bit better this year. Oh, so that's CFC, not, that's CFC, not CFC, known. It, it, it's, it, I mean, there's, it hasn't been thoroughly studied. There's indications that ash is not an important uh, uh, pollen source, and, and, it, and it doesn't produce nectar. Um, it's because it's wind pollinated. But uh, whether um, it's an important pollen source... The indications are that it's probably not, uh, but nobody's quantified it. So, so I hope within this year we'll have some better information on that. Um, and then you know, if, if it were to be, there are certain treatments you can do after pollen shed that would further reduce risk. Well, um, thank you. We're, we're running out of time. If there's one uh, website where people can go, and obviously they can um, Internet search the emerald ash borer, but w what would you suggest? Anything? Well, the easy one to find and probably the best one is the one that the Colorado Department of Agriculture has, and it's EAB for emerald ash borer, colorado.com. Great. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Crenshaw, for coming on the show. You bet. That was Dr. Whitney Crenshaw, professor of entomology and an extension specialist at Colorado State University. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Susan Moran was the producer for this week's show. And Joel Parker was today's engineer and our executive producer for this whole quarter. The theme music was written by Josh Cutler. Other music was from Three Mice and Asian Bistro and Nightclub. Additional thanks to Shelley Schlender for her baseball report. Can't listen to How on Earth at our regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and subscribe to our podcast using the iTunes button. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. And I'm Joel Parker.